Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we find out why there's a growing threat of space junk plummeting to Earth and doing damage down here, a threat made worse by the fact that there are many ways to make it safer. The United Nations announced this week that the world's population will hit 8 billion people this fall. We look at where the growth is taking place, where it's not, and what opportunities and challenges that presents. We learn why advocates for Afghan refugees say Ottawa's decision to wind down a fast-track immigration program abandons Afghans desperate to come to this country, those who Ottawa insisted we would protect. But first, we head back to Lytton, B.C., where a wildfire continues to grow tonight near an area devastated by a deadly fire just a little over a year ago. We speak to the Deputy Chief of the Lytton First Nation about the ongoing efforts to rebuild that community and the difficult memories this latest fire is bringing back. Well, first up, sometimes an event is as much about where it's happening as exactly what is happening. And that is the case tonight in and around Lytton. Just a year after a fast-moving wildfire destroyed the village, killing two people, that was headlines seen around the world. It also burnt down structures on the Lytton First Nation Reserves. There is another out-of-control fire burning in that area again tonight. Fortunately, it is spreading in the opposite direction of the village now. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth in BC says models suggest the fire will not threaten other communities. Meantime, about 80 wildfire personnel are fighting the 1,500 or 15-square-kilometer fire right now. Uh, The Lytton First Nation and Thompson-Nicola Regional District have issued evacuation orders and alerts for dozens of properties across the Fraser River from Lytton. Um, It's broken out about two kilometers northwest of the the village, and it's believed to have burned at least half a dozen homes. No injuries reported yet. Here is Katrin Conroy, Katrine Conroy, the Minister of Forests here in B.C. At this time, it is not posing a threat to Lytton as it is moving away from the town. The fire is classified as out of control, which is a technical term used nationally that means the fire is continuing to spread, which means our BC Wildfire Service crews are applying aggressive suppression and control tactics. I can tell you that last night the fire jumped the Fraser River, but fire crews were able to contain it and stop further spread on that side of the river. That's Katrine Conroy, the Minister of Forests in BC. Now, you can imagine what it's like for those, and not everyone has gone back. I mean, that's an area that's still very much in the rebuild phase, even a year later after that fire. But those who are there, it's been tough. Just the smell, the sounds, the sight of flames and smoke hanging over that community has reopened a lot of wounds that have barely begun to heal. Here's one member of the Lytton First Nation. I'm just remembering losing my town and I got family on that side that lost their houses. I just feel emotional right now. Well, joining me now is John Hogan. He's the Deputy Chief of the Lytton First Nation. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Hi there. So just just the latest on what's on what's happening uh, in the community right now. It's it's seven o'clock. I know the last update we had was a while back, but how are things looking? Uh, they're progressing. We do have our own 12-man unit crew on the fire as well. They're just deploying right now. We have confirmation right now. We we have lost seven homes on our reserve. There's been some evacuations already, I know. Where are those people tonight, uh, Deputy Chief? Some are in Lillooet, some are in Cash Creek, and a few have made their way to Kamloops. They were fortunate to get some rooms there. 
Yeah, we saw the update today from you, which you were involved in as well, but with uh, the public safety minister, the Ministry of Force. Uh, what's the sense in the community right now about where this fire is headed and how big it's getting? Well, the fire has increased in size and its dynamics is picked up by the wind and that really changes the situation in some levels. How so? How is how is it? Is it a real challenge? Is it in an area of, if people aren't familiar with where it's burning? I think a lot of people know those images of the town from last year, but might not know uh, what the terrain is like where it's burning right now. Well, it's burning from the Fraser very, very rapidly up the mountainsides in many locations. So it is an aggressive fire. It's moving, being pushed by the wind and that exacerbates the situation. But there's many, as mentioned, 80 personnel on the fire. It must be, I mean, it must be, we just heard what it was like. I mean, I know you personally lost your home last year. Your your siblings lost their homes. What's it been like just the last 24 hours to, to watch this? I know it must be, I mean, two years ago, this mightn't have been such a big issue, but it must be different now. Oh, yeah, things are different because we don't have all of our community members in place, and those people would have been in assistance. And then there's a lot of... There's a lot of uh, things that people could have helped with. How so? Well, if we had knowledgeable people here, they they could have assisted with um, getting people and we had other people that aren't around and we don't have access to their vehicles. Last night, um, our members had to lend BC Wild Fire Service at least three trucks and some other equipment because with the ferry being out, there's no resources on that side. Yeah, for those who don't know the area that well, I was listening to you say that during the press conference today. Tell me about the ferry and, and what role it plays and having it not operate, what kind of challenge that poses? Well, the ferry operates usually in water that's lower than it is right now. So it can carry two vehicles, but right now without that, there's limited ways to get men, women, and firefighting equipment to the west side so where the fire is burning and people have to pack fuel across a walkway bridge at the southern end of the town across the cn rail bridge right so so in other words it's just hard to reach where it's burning yes for the most part but we do have good hella support and there's good water bomber activity and other resources so we're hoping for some cooler temperatures, and we just had like 30 seconds of rain in Lytton this afternoon, and that was about all we got. Yeah, that would have been that would have been a help. What's it like there right now? Just to see if you could describe just what the what it smells like, what it sounds like, what it looks like. The winds have calmed down a bit. It's still fairly smoky. There's heavy smoke drifting down into the River Canyon. There is a lot of uh, smoke climbing the mountains, too, so that must be affecting the air quality 
in the communities north of us. So there's this big plumes of smoke in different time periods. I know you're not a frontline firefighter, but, but just in general, what are you looking for now in terms of where this fire is moving? We know it continues to grow, but we did hear today during the same press conference that you were involved in uh, that it is moving away from some of the areas, but not all the areas, right? There are structures and so on where the fire is moving towards. Is that is that the case? Yeah, there is the potential that it could affect other housing. So, and it's going in the northwest direction along the Fraser River and climbing the hillsides along the benches, river benches. Are there homes there? Uh, yes, there's homes there. That's why we have the evacuation order right to Intel Palm Creek. Right. So se- seven homes you've said have already been destroyed. Uh, are, are, how many are more under threat as far as you can tell? There's a potential for at least 10 other homes that are in the direct line of fire. John Hogan is my guest this half hour. He's the Deputy Chief of the Lytton First Nation. Of course, there is a out-of-control wildfire burning in that region tonight. Uh, it is about 15 square kilometers. There are about 80 crew on the ground there. There are also uh, helicopters and uh, water bombers, I believe, that are there, including another uh, plane that looks out for everybody else. And there's an incident command team on the ground. So there's lots of work going on, but it is in a tough-to-get-to area. The winds are have been relatively strong, although, uh, as uh, Deputy Chief Hogan said, they've quieted down a little bit. There was a tiny sprinkle of rain this afternoon, but not quite enough. When we come back, we'll talk just more, a bit more about last year and the rebuild and just how the community is doing, because I know... Uh, uh, Deputy Chief Hogan, you had a lot to say last year just about the community coming back stronger, but having to adapt uh, to this new reality of fires and uh, just wondering where you're at with that. We'll get to that after this. Our guest this half hour is John Hogan. He's the Deputy Chief of the Lytton First Nation. Uh, we're talking about a wildfire that's burning out of control not far uh, from the village of Lytton um, on the west side of the Fraser River tonight, about 15 square kilometres. Uh, we've had updates today that it is, in fact, moving away from more populated areas uh, and might not affect any other communities, but certainly less to, just a little more than a year since that devastating wildfire tore through that area. It is very difficult for those there to be watching this happen again and simply uh, keeping their fingers crossed that this continues to be a growing but uh, manageable uh, situation. Um, Deputy Chief Hogan, I read an interview that you gave last year about just the, the community being displaced and and just looking ahead to trying to bring people back, getting people back together, back in their community, back on their land. Where are you with that? And, and what does this fire do to that momentum? Excuse me. Yeah, it does something to the momentum. We have lifted the evacuation orders from last year, just the other day on July 7th, really. And we had people returning to some areas where they could um, be connected to the land and whatnot, but we have about 34 temporary homes that are ready to go, and we're just waiting for the final hydro hookup on those homes. And then now hydro's dealing with... um, new problems in the area in regards to hydro outages caused by fire. Yeah, I mean, it, how has it been for the community for the past year? I know we haven't we haven't talked about this on this show. Uh, I mean, how 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 have you? Where is everybody? And what sense is there that everyone will be able to come back sometime soon? 
Well, for the last year, there's been no services locally. There's nowhere to get groceries, prescriptions, and really to see the doctor or, or those kind of things that you would find in a full community. And so partial services have come back, like the bank and the post office, and we're waiting for an RCMP station. We had different uh, medical temporary buildings put in so doctors could visit their patients again and that's normally how it's been people had to grocery shop one hour away and then the atmospheric rivers in november closed down many of the highways that were needed to get to somewhere else to do your basic shopping for daily living so still not really nowhere near normal at all. At no, and we've said prior that it would probably be five to seven years before everything's fully back. When you see another fire... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I see when you see another fire like this one, it must just raise alarm bells again, thinking when when are we going to be able to settle back where we were and return to what we had? Yeah, and with fires, we know that they're always going to be in our midst at some point, and we have to always be prepared for that. And it's just part of the landscape where we are situated, and the extreme heat that we experience here is a factor, and we really have to be cognizant of how we treat fire and the respect that we have to show fire and not mishandle it. I know that you were directly impacted by this. The uh, The band office was, was burned. Uh, I think you lost your home as well. Your siblings did. How have you been? How have you been doing? Myself, there's a lot of distractions. Like we've had way more meetings than we've ever had. And we have to do a lot of that to put things in place for community members and try to find uh, a balance of how to work with them and achieve getting them houses and services in the community. I think you said a year ago that you thought it would make the, the community stronger in the long run. Do you still feel that way? I do, and there are people that are struggling, but once they are situated and are able to progress and feel connected to the land again, there'll be many strides made. It still feels like home? It does. John Hogan, thank you so much. Uh, I think everyone's keeping their fingers crossed that this uh, is a scare, but not much more, hopefully. And we know there's been some homes lost already, but hopefully uh, it doesn't get any worse than that. Thank you so much for your time tonight and good luck. Thank you all for thinking of us. Take care. Well, the sky is falling is usually a term used to mock those who make dire predictions about imminent disaster that don't come true. But new research out of the University of British Columbia reveals there is a significant threat, or a threat at least, from above. It all has to do with space junk, all that stuff left behind in orbit, such as rocket stages, and the chances that some of it and the increasing chances that some of it will come crashing down on us. Now, the risk has long been seen as pretty negligible. 
But are we tricking ourselves? In an article published this week in Nature Astronomy called Unnecessary Risks Created by Uncontrolled Rocket Reentries, researchers estimate that abandoned rocket parts in space have up to a 10% chance of severely injuring or killing someone in the next decade. Well, joining me now is Michael Byers. He's co-director of the Outer Space Institute, a professor of international relations at UBC that we've spoken to before on the show, and he is the lead author of this report. Michael, thank you so much for your time tonight. Welcome back. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. So what is floating around up there, and, and, and how did you go about trying to figure out what kind of threat it poses? Well, we, we started this research uh, a year ago, um, shortly after there was a lot of uh, media attention worldwide to uh, a Chinese um, rocket stage that had been abandoned in orbit after the Chinese launched a module for their space station. And this rocket stage that they abandoned um, weighed 20 tons. That's 20 tons empty without fuel. And uh, it was going to come down in an uncontrolled way. And there was a lot of concern that it might strike a major city. It didn't. It uh, it came down uh, in the ocean and, and everyone was safe. Um, but the fact that there was so much uh, attention and criticism from other countries, from other governments, prompted us to, to look, first of all, at whether the Chinese had tried to control this rocket stage to, to bring it down safely and avoid any risk. And no, they had not. They just abandoned it. Um, and then we discovered that other countries um, were engaging in, in the same practice. So roughly 60% of all space launches result in one of these rocket stages being left to drift in orbit until they come down eventually because there's a small amount of gas in orbit and so a little bit of drag and eventually they come down and and they come down in a completely random way and you know that struck us as something pretty important um there's a, a dramatic increase in the number of space launches um as uh, companies like spacex start installing uh, mega constellations of thousands of broadband satellites in orbit. Um, so we, we, we did some serious science and, and came up with some really interesting findings. Yeah, tell me about those, because you did sort of try to determine a low case and a high, sort of upper end and lower end of the threat. And either way, it was, it was significant. I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not super high, but it's, it's you know, 6 10% is, is high enough if you're standing on Earth. Well, yeah, especially if you're the person who's hit, right? Um, yeah, and, uh, and yeah, the, 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 the risk is, is statistically small, um, but uh, it's higher if you live roughly 30 degrees north of the equator. Um, so in a, a megacity uh, like uh, Mumbai or Mexico City, and, and that's because a lot of these rocket stages are used uh, for launches to geosynchronous orbit, um, to, to put satellites uh, 35,000 kilometers above the Earth, where they're essentially moving, they're rotating the same speed as the Earth, and so they're stationary above a particular point on the ground. So for things like satellite TV, you want the satellite in geosynchronous orbit, and the rocket stage is abandoned on an orbit near the equator, and so it comes down near the equator. And so the, the countries of the global south are at roughly a three times higher risk of having someone killed by a piece of rocket body than someone living in Alberta. And uh, 
Um, you know, that was interesting because we know that northern developed countries have been exporting risk to southern developing countries on other issues. Um, you know, whether it's consumer electronics at the end of their life being exported to the global south or whether it's greenhouse gas emissions produced mostly in the north having impacts in the south. Um, so this is not a new story, but it's an interesting finding, I think. And the other thing we found out is that none of this is necessary because we now have the technologies to ensure that every single rocket stage is brought back in a controlled manner. You just have to use a, a rocket that has an engine that can reignite, and you need to reserve enough fuel for that reentry burn so that you can bring it back in a controlled way. And 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 it's possible, and, and you know, there are companies and countries that are doing this already, at least part of the time, and we think it's now appropriate to call for a a new standard, a global standard that says that we need to transition to fully controlled reentries. Because in the paper itself, you do point out that there are a number of sort of rules, conventions in place, but there are no real rules against this, are there? No, there, there is an international um, treaty on liability. So if someone is killed on the ground, then the, the country that launched the rocket or, or licensed the company that launched the rocket is absolutely liable for that damage. So there's a possibility of, of compensation being required. But as far as we can tell, these countries and companies are simply treating this risk as a cost of doing business, that they're not seeking to remove the risk. And we wouldn't allow that in the aviation industry, right? You wouldn't want governments to let Air Canada or WestJet take a small chance with people's lives in order to save money. We just don't allow it. So we think it's time to subject the space industry to the same strict um, safety regime. You did point out in your paper as well that, in fact, while the uh, the first example you were talking about uh, of a Chinese um, Long March rocket fell into the Indian Ocean, uh, there was an incident in 2020 where they actually crashed into a village in the uh, in Ivory Coast, right? partially in in reentry and and fragment into pieces but but some of the harder pieces larger pieces uh, do make it to the ground and this was a 12 meter long pipe that ended up um, in a village uh, in, in the Ivory Coast now that 12 meter long pipe um, 10 minutes earlier had been flying over New York City right wow. <laughs> and, of course, yes and, and imagine a 12 meter long pipe coming down at high velocity into central Manhattan, right? Um, yeah. And we don't look at these, you know, high casualty, mass casualty scenarios in this paper. That That's a subject for further research. But there certainly is a risk that, you know, a, a large piece could hit the downtown core of a, a city, hit a an apartment building. Um, and it's also possible that a piece even a small piece could hit a an aircraft in flight. So, you know, you can imagine what, you know, 10 kilograms of rocket body, titanium, would do if it struck a Boeing 777 in flight. Um, you know, it would, it would kill 400 people. 
Um, those are worst-case scenarios, and we haven't tried to do the the risk analysis in terms of the statistical risk yet, but it's another reason why we should get on top of this issue and say, look, it's time to move to, to a controlled reentry regime. Why haven't we taken this more seriously? I mean, looking through your paper and looking through some of the other writings about about this issue, uh, it's sort of, I gather, been long presumed that the threat was relatively minimal, but uh, but clearly, clearly it's not. Yeah, and look, we're we're slow as societies, as countries, to to make rules about about bad things that haven't happened yet. So we we talk in the paper about the Exxon Valdez oil spill off the coast of Alaska more than three decades ago. Up until that point, most of the oil tankers in the world had single hulls. That's what industry wanted. It saved money in terms of the cost of shipbuilding. There were some people who were saying, look, we should have a requirement of double hulls to provide extra protection against oil spills. They were ignored. The Exxon Valdez accident happened. The National uh, Transportation Safety Board in the United States found that if it had had a double hull, that the oil spill would not have happened or would have been significantly reduced. And within a year, the U.S. government mandated double hulls on all new tankers using United States ports. And two years later, the International Maritime Organization adopted the same rule for the entire world. So we've done this before, right? This shipping example, double hulls, I like because it's transportation in an area beyond national jurisdiction, the oceans, just like space, in the sense that it's beyond national territory. And we've adopted rules. What I want to see is us adopting these rules before serious accident occurs, not waiting until that accident happens and then, you know, do the rulemaking after the fact. Yeah, if you remember back to those images of the Exxon Valdez, certainly one wouldn't, uh, you know, at that point, the double hull uh, became such a, you know, in hindsight, it became such a no-brainer. But at the time, of course, you're right, lots of different pressures within the industry meant that it hadn't happened until something uh, devastating did happen when it could have been prevented. I'm speaking with Michael Byers. He's co-director of the Outer Space Institute, a professor of international relations at the University of British Columbia. He's also the lead author of a new report about uh, the dangers uh, potentially of, of space junk, as we often call it, uh, plummeting to Earth and doing damage down here as there's more and more of it up there. Uh, there aren't any real rules in place necessarily. And also perhaps most vexing about it all, it's preventable, at least for future rocket launches, all of them. Uh, we'll talk about that more when we get back. We're talking the threat of things falling from space, space junk landing on us. There are more rockets up there, uh, more rocket, at least to parts up there, uh, circling around. What goes up must come down to some extent. Uh, and the threat is, uh, is there. It's also preventable, which is what we've been talking about. Uh, my guest this half hour is Michael Byers. He's co-director of the Outer Space Institute, uh, lead author of a recent report on this very topic. And of course, a professor of international relations at UBC. Uh, you did mention this in the paper, and I thought it was interesting the way you, you, you sort of, um, describe what could happen if one of these things were to fall to earth and, 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 your, and do damage. And when you mentioned the Exxon Valdez, of course, which not only did damage to uh, waters off the coast of Alaska, but also waters off the coast of BC, this could be an international incident too, if something were to go wrong, and who knows where that could end up. Well, yes. And uh, you know, imagine if uh, a uh, 
large piece of debris from a Chinese rocket were to hit Manhattan and kill several hundred people, that would be an international incident. Um, and uh, and the U.S. government was critical of, of the Chinese practice of abandoning these large rocket stages. But we also looked into what the United States does. And what's interesting here is the, the U.S. government has a guideline that uh, every rocket launch um, must have uh, less than a, a 1 in 10,000 chance of, of killing someone as a result of a returning rocket body, which sounds like a pretty high standard, except they regularly waive the requirement because it's only a guideline. And uh, really? we looked at the practice of NASA and the U.S. Department of Defense, and, and you know, about half the time they, they tell the, the company they've contracted for a, a satellite launch that, that it's okay to proceed, even though the, the casualty risk is higher than 1 in 10,000. Um, and that's to save the company's money because they're using older rockets that can't reignite their engines and, and come back in a controlled way. Um, now, we think this is particularly egregious because if any customer can afford to pay for a, a safe launch, it's the U.S. government. And uh, there's therefore a, a problem with an absence of leadership on this issue. We're hoping by drawing attention to it, we can get the U.S. government to do what it does on a lot of issues, which is actually to show leadership, right? They were the ones that, that led the requirement for a double hull on oil tankers. Um, so we think they should you know, take the lead and do the same thing here. You must be concerned that nothing will happen until something bad happens? Yeah, uh, that's uh, always a concern, but um, you know, as as a researcher, what I can do is is uh, you know study issues closely, uh, come up with with you know convincing evidence that there's a problem, and then you know explain that uh, both to to politicians and government officials and, and and industry leaders, and also to the general public, like I'm doing right now, because right. if you have knowledge, then you're choosing not to act rather than not acting because you're uncertain that there's a problem. I have about two minutes left. In terms of cost, because clearly this is a cost issue, right? Uh, I mean, if, if each of them could in fact be brought back safely um, and get in a controlled manner, to use the term, uh, how expensive would it be to just do that for all these launches? It doesn't strike me as being egregiously expensive. Well, it shouldn't be. And there is one company, SpaceX, which is actually landing most of its first stages, its large rocket stages, landing them on four legs and using them again and again and again and saving a ton of money by doing that. Um, you know, SpaceX also manages to bring most of its second stages back in a controlled manner, but not always. And one thing we found is that occasionally when SpaceX is launching a a satellite to geosynchronous orbit way up you know, 35,000 kilometers above the Earth's surface, they, they use up all the fuel in the second stage to, to get the satellite as high as possible to reduce the time that the satellite then has to use up while it's lifting itself with its own thrusters. So they're trying to save their customers time. They use up all the fuel on that second stage, and it's abandoned. And it's abandoned on what's called a geotransfer orbit, which is highly elliptical. And so the lowest part of the orbit comes relatively close to Earth, catches a lot of atmospheric drag and comes down in a few months. And, and SpaceX did exactly this just 
just last month. So at some point in the next month or two, a SpaceX second stage is going to come back in an uncontrolled manner and uh, you know, could potentially kill someone. Completely unavoidable, just doing it to save the customer some time. Michael Byers, a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much uh, for sharing all that information. I'll be uh, I'll be looking up in a different way for the next little while. Thanks uh, for that. It's always a pleasure to talk about what I do. Thank you. Well, the United Nations released new population estimates this week. They're always fascinating. This one predicts that we will hit 8 billion people on planet Earth by the fall of this year. 8 billion people. Um, November 15th, to be precise, that's the date they have. I don't think it's supposed to be an exact date, but uh, that's the date they're predicting. And to top it all off in the same uh, set of predictions, India will replace China as the world's most populous nation next year. To me, that's, I mean, I think China has been the most populous country my entire life. Um, and it felt like that would never change. And here we are. And we, I mean, we knew this was coming, but uh, by next year, India will replace China as the most populous nation. In a report released on World Population Day, which was earlier this week, uh, they also said that global population growth fell below 1% in 2020 for the first time since 1950. And according to the latest projections, the world population could grow to about 8.5 billion in 2030, 9.7 billion in 2050, and peak around 10.4 billion during the 2080s. Um, back in 1990, it was about 5.28 billion. That wasn't that long ago. And one stat that always floors me is this one. It's estimated that the population of the world reached 1 billion people for the first time in 1804. It would be 100 years before it reached 2 billion, more than 100, 1927. Now, less than a century later, it's 8 billion. We went from 2 billion to, in 1927, to 8 billion in 2022. So this all presents some challenges, specifically since most of the growth is now happening in certain areas and none of the growth is happening in other areas. And to look more at both the challenges and the opportunities, I'm joined by Dr. Toy No. He's an epidemiologist and the head of the Social and Behavioral Science Research Department at the Population Council in New York City. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much for having me. So we are headed towards 8 billion. Uh, we know that there was a decline in population, we thought, or at least population growth during the pandemic, but we are headed towards this 8 billion figure this year. Uh, that strikes me as being a, a milestone, obviously. Yeah, of course, it's a milestone. We're quickly moving toward 8 billion. And uh, what is striking to me is that fertility rates have fallen to 2.3 births per woman and continue to decline. And just to put it to context, when the Population Council start, started working on population dynamics in 1952, it was five births per woman. So the balance of the world population has changed and con will continue to, to do so. For, in, for instance, India will soon replace China as the largest country, and most growth in the coming decades will be in countries like India, Nigeria, Pakistan, the Philippines, and a few others. One thing that I think would be really great to mention is that over the next few decades, we will see migration become the sole driver of population growth in high-income country. Uh, and by contrast, for the foreseeable future, population increase in low and lower middle-income country will continue to be driven by excess birth over deaths. And for me is that, um, the, the, what's striking here is that we'll see the rising uh, generation of adolescent and young people uh, in many of the lower middle income countries. So for instance, one in five adolescents 
in the world live in India. So we got to think about this rising generation in the face of the global pandemic, the global of the, the global climate crisis, as well as the uh, the recession that we are facing now as the world. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I was looking at is, is of course, the UN's also looked further ahead to 2050 and then predicts will be about 10.4 billion by then. But just eight countries, um, you know, half the projected increase is happening in just a few places, just eight countries, as you mentioned, you know, Egypt, Ethiopia, Congo, India, Nigeria, Pakistan, the Philippines and Tanzania. That seems like a, an awfully concentrated growth compared to what we had experienced over over the decades previous. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, many of the growth right now is concentrated in uh, those countries. And this is a critical moment to call on the global development and the global health community as government is this country to really think about uh, a moment of safeguard and harness the potential of the larger generation of adolescent and young people in, the, in this country. I mentioned before, India is home to the biggest cohort of this group. And as India takes over China as the world's most populous nation, it's critical that we start tackling issues that is more upstream. So gender equality and doing that in early life, protect access to comprehensive sexual and reproductive health care and support uh, pathways to quality education and decent work for the rising generation of young people in this country. Um, and it, it is projected that less than half of young people will find formal jobs in the coming decades, which can stop uh, economic prog- progress and risk to security and stability. So more and more, I would encourage that policymaker governments, not just in those countries with rising population, but government all over the world to really invest in paying attention to this rising generation. Because obviously one of the things that happens is there becomes a disconnect because as you've mentioned, um, a lot of the growth is happening in sub-Saharan Africa uh, and other places, but, but in Europe, for instance, and in other parts of the world, population growth is actually, I mean, at least population growth within the countries is actually reversing. It's, it, it's going backwards. So, so I, I suppose the call here is to make sure that the countries that are, uh, that are experiencing a decline in real population growth uh, do pay attention to those that are not. Yeah, I think uh, that we have seen a major shift in the last few decades. uh, And we have seen uh, decline in fertility in many places, but aging uh, has become a major um, uh, demographic shift as well as urbanization. So for a country like in Europe and uh, uh, that that are experiencing uh, an aging population, how do they think about supportive infrastructures to support uh, the aging population, but also thinking about international migration, for instance, you know? So uh, essential jobs that keep daily society running are often done by newly arrived immigrants. So there are millions of refugees and displaced people around the world. So international migration can be harnessed as an engine for economic progress, as it is introduces new talent, new workforce, for aging society like uh, Europe, as well as social and cultural privacy. And yet often um, we're seeing the opposite when, when these confronted with these, uh, with, with migration, which I suspect will continue. Uh, many countries in other parts of the world tend to start to shut their borders, right? To that, to that, uh, to that movement. 
Yeah, I, I would just, you know, I, as a researcher, I want to point to the evidence that there's a study here in the United States that show uh, in Detroit that show that while Detroit continues to suffer in terms of economic downturn and population loss for the fifth decade in a row, two neighborhoods in the city with high concentration of immigrants from Bangladesh, Yemen, Mexico, Central America, show different trends. The population grew, the neighborhood improved, and more new businesses opened. So my recommendation and my hope really that uh, host country would understand the long-term positive social and, uh, and economic progress refugees have on their society and investing in them and not turning them away. When we look at what's driving some of this population growth that we're seeing now, I gather it's a, it's a mix of things, certainly in, in sub-Saharan Africa, where you're seeing, uh, you're seeing longer life spans, uh, certainly for, for children being born and also, uh, children living through, living through their early years at a higher rate. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think one of the great news about this projection is that we are seeing people are living longer. So I think that's like one of the great news that coming out of this report that life expectancy have increased. I'm speaking with Dr. Atoy No. He's an epidemiologist and the head of the Social and Behavioral Science Research Department at the Population Council in New York City. We're talking about uh, statistics or projections released this week by the United Nations saying that we will reach 8 billion people on this planet, they say by mid-November of this year. It's not an exact date, but it's close. And also one of the other big stories emerging from this is that India will replace China as the world's most populous nation in 2023. We're looking at some of the impacts of that, some of uh, what we can expect uh, with these numbers. They certainly are. uh, The growth is happening in specific countries, most of it in eight countries uh, uh, specifically. And and it's not happening, obviously, in in the developed world, in places like uh, Western Europe and in, in North America and so forth. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about the uh, about India becoming the world's most populous country, because that is a big change. I think for my entire lifetime, it has been China. Um, and we'll talk about some of the other statistics that emerged and what they mean after this. My guest is Dr. Toy No. He's an epidemiologist and head of the Social Behavioral Science Research Department at the Population Council in New York City. We've been talking about UN population projections out this week that show a few milestones, 8 billion people uh, on this planet, they predict, by November the 15th of 2022. And India will surpass China as the world's most populous nation uh, next year. Uh, Dr. No, that's an interest. I mean, I think for my entire lifetime, China has been sort of the symbol of the most populous country in the world. Um, There's a lot going on here that that explains the difference, but what does it entail for two of the biggest economies in the world that uh, one has become more populous than the other? Yeah, you know, I think China has uh, um, the sort of population policy that was focused on the one-child policy. So I think that this has an impact on that. Recent years, China have kind of eased up on that policy. Uh, So, and then what we're going to see in the future for China is a more aging population uh, because of a consequence of that policy. Uh, But also in India now, uh, as I mentioned before, it's going to overtake China as the most populous nation. But uh, again, in, in India is that 1.5, one, one out of five adolescents in the world live in India. Now we got to take a pause and think about that. That's one out of five adolescent and young people live in India alone. So how, how do we really harness the, the social and economic potential and progress that this largest generation uh, can uh, support 
uh, India development. So one thing that I want to point to is that through uh, this largest study that we have in India at Population Council, it's called Udaya Initiative. Uh, it's a large data set uh, in Bihar and Uttar Pradesh, which are two of the highest pop uh, poverty areas in India, but also highly populous. We've been able to track more than 20,000 young people to better understand their life trajectory. And we found that major gender gaps in school enrollment and literacy and numeracy with boys outperforming girls on all measures. And girls who were married in the, uh, in the first study wave at the greatest uh, disadvantage, boys are also assessing mobile phone and the internet at a higher rates, enabling them to participate fully in the increasing digital economy and maximize their human capital in the Indian context. So this is just a sketch of some of the condition underpinning outcomes for India, young people who will drive progress for the world's soon most populous nation. So I, I think what we gotta pay attention to at the global economy is that how do we invest in large generation? Uh, one of the things I found really fascinating about this report, because I wasn't aware of just how much it had changed, is, is how global life expectancy has improved dramatically since 1990. It's up almost nine years. So 72.8 years for babies born in 2019 to reach 77.2 by 2050. Now it's lagging in less in poorer countries, but still it's up. What's behind this dramatic shift in such a short period of time in life expectancy? Yeah, I think uh, these numbers are expected then. I think um, uh, over the past few decades, we have seen that um, life savings, drugs, vaccines, and health solutions have improved all over the world. For instance, better treatment for HIV AIDS, which are a leading cause of death in many of these countries for a very long time. We've seen better uh, uh, access to sexual uh, uh, health and uh, contraception all over the world. We also seen uh, really great um, uh, um, life-saving tools for uh, maternal deaths and neonatal deaths, uh, which has been responsible for a major driver of mortality in some of these countries. So, and, and together with some of these uh, life-saving tools, we also see um, better education attainment for people all around the world. Um, children are enrolled in school and graduating at a higher rate. We are seeing people are entering uh, the, the labor force. So uh, for me is that is the driver are not only health, but it's also health, uh, quality education, but also the investment in economic opportunity uh, for people. By 2050, we're going to see a real shift uh, to some extent in, in, in the most populous countries, the 10 most. I know that most of us probably learned this in high school or at some point. I know many of us have looked at it again. But by 2050, the prediction is that India, then China, then the U.S., then Nigeria, Pakistan, Indonesia, Brazil, Congo, Ethiopia, and Bangladesh. Those will be the 10 most populous countries in the world. That's a real shift uh, in that, and, and also in the power dynamic, because of course, big populations mean uh, lots of economic opportunity, lots of growth for opportunity for economic growth. How do, you've mentioned it earlier, but how do we have to harness that? What do we need to do to make sure that all that youth and talent isn't isn't wasted or isn't simply uh, you know trying to get out of those countries? Yeah, I think I think first I would say that 
uh, real social, uh, social economic inequality within and across groups and country are tied to exclusion and differential access in money, resources, and power, and et cetera. And this, is, this clearly raises many questions about how people can and will adapt to the crisis of global recession, pandemic, and climate change. So for, for me is that we really got to really think about how do we invest in, uh, continue to invest in better education for the, the rising generation. Because if we don't. Because if we don't, then uh, we will face many, uh, not only economic risks, but social, uh, social insecurity uh, risks around the world. Dr. No, thank you so much for your time tonight. Appreciate your time, Ben. Thank you. Are we a country that keeps its promises? That's what this story is about, really, this next one. You see, a year ago now, as the Taliban moved towards what would be a complete takeover of the country not much longer afterwards, the Canadian government set up a special immigration program to bring in 18,000 people, fast-track them essentially, who had had a significant and enduring relationship, that's the quote, significant and enduring relationship in supporting the Canadian mission in Afghanistan. So those are people who worked for the embassy, those are people who worked for the military, and according to that relatively vague and bureaucratic definition, uh, that also meant people who had done work on behalf of Canadians, uh, Canada's uh, overseas ambitions, for instance, educating women uh, was one of them, uh, you know, that we supported programs, the government supported programs, taxpayers supported programs in Afghanistan uh, on gender equality and educating girls and so forth. And the people who work there were also sort of the face of the Canadian mission in that country. In fact, if anything, they were probably the most public face of our work in that country. Really, the whole idea of educating girls, women and girls, was a real big deal for Canada. And those who did that work were on the front lines of that. So here is Immigration Minister Marco Mendocino 11 months ago making this promise. And listen for a vow near the end. As the world continues to watch painfully and with growing alarm, the shroud of terrorism spread in Afghanistan, Canada is carefully, expeditiously, and effectively carrying out a special resettlement operation to evacuate Afghan nationals who, for years, provided critical support to the Canadian mission in that country. Canada will do right by those who did right by us. And today, I'm here to say that we will do more. Canada will do right by those who did right by us. That's a promise. Well, now it turns out all 18,000 of those spots are filled. Many of the people who worked or qualify, we believe, aren't here yet. Um, but Ottawa is closing that program. Again, the problem is many who qualify under that somewhat vague, significant, enduring relationship are still in Afghanistan. They don't know if they've been considered. They don't know if their applications are being processed. They don't know if they're part of that 18,000. Advocates for refugees say the decision to wind down the program abandons Afghans desperate to come to this country, those who the minister said we would do right by. Well, joining me now is Lauren Oates. She's the executive director of Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan, a charity and not-for-profit organization promoting gender equality uh, that has supported and implemented hundreds of education programs in Afghanistan since its creation in 1998. Thanks for your time tonight. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. 
So I know that you sent, uh, we're part of uh, one of the organizations that sent a letter to the federal government asking that this not be stopped. Um, I gather we're finding out that, in fact, they have gone ahead and halted this program. Is that your, your understanding as well? Yes, um, they filled all the spots that were available for this program, which was 18,000 in total. So out of that 40,000 commitment uh, to bring 40,000 Afghans to Canada that was made um, by this government, 18,000 of those were reserved for this program, the special immigration measures. And they've stated that that's now full and there's been no announcement about renewing it, extending it, adding more spots. So that's what we're advocating for because that fell far short of actually meeting what was needed. And there's still at least as many people who have been left behind, who do meet the criteria, who are eligible for the program, who have actually inquired as far back as July, even before the fall of Kabul, when the program was first announced and are still waiting for some kind of response from the government. And this program uh, for the 18,000 applied specifically, my, to my understanding, to those who had supported the government or, or the mission in some significant way, so either through governmental, NGO, or military. That's right. The language that the government uses is that they had a significant and enduring relationship with Canada. Um, and in part, that's been a bit tricky because that's you know sufficiently um, inclusive and exclusive at the same time. It's a, it's a bit general and it's been subject to interpretation. And that's been interpreted differently, I think, by different agents at uh, Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, IRCC. Um, so it wasn't always clear exactly what that included, but it was pretty clear from the beginning that it did include the military interpreters, Afghans who worked for the Canadian forces, and it included staff of the Canadian embassy in Afghanistan. And ultimately, it was more or less confirmed that it also included people who have worked on Canadian government funded programming, um, like programming that was meant for women and girls that was part of Canada's feminist international foreign policy, and its focus on gender equality in Afghanistan. So that's the case for my colleagues. Um, we were implementing programming for Global Affairs Canada um, going way back. And so representing those those programs that were funded by Canada in, in Afghanistan. So um, there's there's people in all of those categories who are still waiting to hear back. So Ottawa is saying that the 18,000 positions they'd opened up for this particular program are now filled. Uh, I gather they will continue processing those. But how many of your colleagues are left who would have qualified, I, by your understanding, are left there? And how many of them applied? Um, so we got uh, five people who were notified that they could apply at the very beginning um, or shortly after the program launched. So last summer, and four of those five are now in Canada and one is waiting um, for her application to be approved in Pakistan, but 17 have heard nothing. Um, and those 17 are no different from the five who did here. In fact, many of the 17 actually have more seniority. They had more um, publicly facing positions. They're more exposed um, they were more senior in terms of you know, being in management positions. Um, so we're not clear, you know, why, why those five and nobody else, but um, yeah, 17 who are still waiting to hear one way or the other. It sounds like in some ways it turned into a bit of a lottery. That's exactly it. And, you know, of course we hear stories all the time of people who did make it here through the program. And I can't make heads or tails of, how some people got chosen and some didn't. I mean, some it's really unclear what their relationship to Canada was, if, if any, um, and others it is clear. So I, you know, it was a new program. And so it's to be expected that there is going to be a little bit of messiness at the beginning, a, a bit of chaos. Um, but the problem is that, you know, the, the, the stakes are so high here. I mean, they're literally life and death. Like I'm worried every single day for the lives of my colleagues. 
um, you know, if I get a text or a call in the middle of the night, my heart immediately jumps. And, um, you know, we've had a couple of close calls. And so every day that they're stuck there is, you know, is, is, is another day to worry about. Um, and so, you know, it, it's really critical that, um, that, that there's fairness in, in, the, in the process, that there's equity, because those who got in, that meant that, you know, there's not spots available for others. So we have to be really certain that the people who did get in meet the criteria um, and if there were, you know, mistakes and messiness at the beginning, then you've got to keep the program going so that people who are that this program was meant for get the opportunity to apply. Because one, I mean, you would know this from working in the in the in in the field that you work in. Once you get the tough part is to get it going. Once you've got it going and you iron out the problems, extending it is actually pretty straightforward. That's why I'm I, I, I'm not really sure why they don't make an announcement about adding more spaces that would really seem to solve the problem for us as well as for the government and certainly for all the Afghans waiting to hear something. And we know that it will take a long time, um, you know, that that there's already a backlog. And even of those 40,000, only 16 and a half thousand have actually arrived in Canada over the past year since the program was launched. Um, and about a third of those are special immigration measures people, so around 7,000. Um, so, you know, about a third of, um, of, of those who have been approved have actually made it. So this is going to stretch into years for sure. But I think that that is surmountable. Um, people who are, for instance, waiting in a third country like, like Pakistan, they can manage if they know they have a solution waiting for them, even if it's going to take a while. The problem is now that they just haven't heard anything. So I just can't understand why the door is closing on this program when there's still so many allies that we haven't been able to get here yet. Um, and you have similar programs for Ukraine that continue to run. What is the difference? I mean, this is a crisis that is still ongoing. It hasn't stopped. It's only gotten worse. So keep the program going while the need is still there. Have you heard? from Ottawa at all? Um, we, as part of our campaign, we sent a letter to the prime minister's office, the coalition of organizations that's been behind this campaign. And we sent that in June and uh, about a month later in July, we got an acknowledgement of receipt, but we haven't heard more than that so far. Now the government says, at least uh, immigration says there are other avenues and there are other avenues open. What, what is the, the downside of that? What, what about this program uh, was more effective? I guess it was fast-tracked, right? Yeah, the main thing about this program is that it was for specifically for people who worked on behalf of Canada, who were representing Canada, I mean, concretely in terms of actually implementing projects that were funded by Canadian taxpayers that represented Canadian foreign policy. Um, and, and those also reflected Canadian values. So they really stepped up to do this work on behalf of Canada and are now being left behind. So that's why it is different. And to be told, you know, oh, just try for private sponsorship or try under the humanitarian pathway. That's just not right, because I think we actually have a greater responsibility for those who are at risk because of the work they did for Canada. That's the difference. I mean, arguably, the entire population of Afghanistan is at risk, and certainly every woman and every girl is at risk of forced marriage, of being denied an education, of being denied the right to work. Everyone's at risk of poverty. So, you know, it's justifiable that everyone would want to leave that country, and we're not going to be able to help everyone. So we have to make very difficult choices uh, and methodical choices about who we help. And in my view, um, and certainly I, I have a bias here, but I think it's all still makes a lot of sense that we prioritize those who we worked with, who were our allies, who helped us first. We make sure they're safe, and then we help everyone else that we can. 
speaking with Lauren Oates. She's the executive director of Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan. We're talking about a decision uh, by the Canadian government to halt, or at least uh, to stop a program uh, to fast track certain Afghans to be allowed to come to this country. Those who had had a close working relationship with the Canadian government, it's bureaucratically vague, uh, but it did include those who'd worked with the military, those who'd worked at the embassy in Kabul, uh, as well as those who worked on various Canadian funded projects, such as Girls in Education, uh, where Lauren Oates' groups come in and groups like hers come in. Uh, when we come back a bit more just about what can be done now, uh, is there any hope that this will be changed? And also a reminder that Canada spent a lot of political capital talking about educating women and girls in Afghanistan. So our debt to those who stuck their neck out to do that work in that country, as risky as it is, is probably a debt that needs to be paid. We'll be back with that. My guest this half hour is Lauren Oates. She's the executive director of Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan. Um, Lauren, one of the things when I was there, obviously, I spent some time in Afghanistan working. I mean, the Canadian government went, and the military for that matter, went way out of their way to promote the very women who work for your organization. In other words, to make them very visible, to make their work very visible in terms of who it was benefiting and whose values it was supporting. What kind of danger do they face now that there's been this regime change? I mean, clearly they would be people that the the Taliban would target, I would imagine. Yeah, word I hear a lot is hunted down, that people have the feeling of being hunted, um, you know, hiding, going from place to place, uh, trying to go to neighboring countries to, to get away. Uh, so it, it is very dangerous. And, um, you know, the Taliban, despite facing this enormous crisis in the country, an economic crisis where people are literally starting to starve to death, they have still found ample time to implement their their various rules and edicts and um, try to clamp down on the population and you know restrict uh, cultural life and um, and sort of, uh, uh, you know things from their moral perspective and so um, implementing rules against women like that they can't work that girls can't attend school past grade six and going after people they see as um, either threats that they don't like the the ideologies, the beliefs that they espouse, that they were too aligned with the West, um, or who they simply um, want to seek vengeance against because people were collaborating with the coalition forces that were actually fighting um, the Taliban. Um, so uh, they, th- there's plenty of documentation that they've actually gone after people. They have hunted people down and they've made people disappear. Um, They've imprisoned them. They've executed them. That's been documented by Human Rights Watch and and others. Uh, They've imprisoned women activists um, who have protested or who said things on social media or or television that were critical of the regime. So it's it's very, very dangerous. Um, They also conduct searches of offices and houses. They will occupy the offices of NGOs. Um, they will pull over cars on, on the road and they'll interfere in, um, in aid work. So um, it's, it's, it's a very, very dangerous situation. And there's already been one terrible loss where a young girl was killed in Kandahar by the Taliban. And she was someone who I believe was even approved to come to Canada, but hadn't been given the visa yet to come or her paperwork was somewhere in, in process. Um, and there's going to be more stories like that if uh, we don't, we don't uh, keep this this policy and the the program open so people can get to safety. Do you get any sense that there is a, a chance here that there will be a U-turn from, from Ottawa on this? We hope every day. I mean, it's the right thing to do. And uh, I, I don't think there's a high political cost. Uh, Canadians have been very welcoming and, and open and concerned about what's happening in Afghanistan. 
Um, as I said, people are not coming quickly, so we're not biting off more than we can chew. Um, you know, out of that 40,000, it's going to take at least a couple of years to get people here, if not longer. So they're coming in, in, in smaller numbers than it might look like on the surface. So we have the capacity to absorb people, to integrate them. Um, and Canada simply has a lot of connections with Afghanistan after all these years of investing in the country. So I think the public is on side with this. I think the government can um, can keep this program open. It's not a matter of creating a new program or setting up new policy. It's just continuing an existing program and adding more spots to it. So I don't see any good reasons to not continue it, but I also don't know why there hasn't been an announcement to date. So we're, you know, hoping against the odds. Um, but as for myself, we won't, we won't be giving up here. It's our responsibility to keep our staff safe. So we'll, um, we'll keep at this until every one of those 17 people um, who's still waiting for a response from the government gets to Canada. You must feel the shoulder, you must be shouldering the burden of this as well. I mean, not the burden is probably the wrong word, but the, you know, the, the collective fear of this, because these are, you know, these are programs that people believe deeply in, in the country that work very hard, we're very proud of. And now with the change in regime, it's become a very dangerous place to be for them. Yeah. And you know what, they still believe in this stuff. Mm-hmm. And People are still doing what they can despite these very dangerous circumstances. And um, it's really remarkable that when in some ways Canada has turned their back on them, that they they continue doing this work and they continue espousing um, the, the, same, the same values. And I hope that we can see that we have these shared values. And in a situation like this, where you have an extremist, dangerous group in power in a country running a government the best strategy is to support the dissidents, to support the people who have, you know, a better ideology, who believe in democracy, who believe in women's rights, who believe in people having access to a secular education. We've got to be behind them. And after 20 years of Canada supporting and investing in Afghanistan, it's, it's a very sudden about face um, to just say, you know, well, um, that's it. We'll get we'll get these people out, and then we're going to move on. Um, I think that we have some kind of legacy there to protect, despite what happened last August. Um, there's people counting on us, and uh, we should do everything we can to um, to uh, fulfill our promises to them. Laura Notes, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.